Uh, I suppose this is for me. They left the candy up here. Is that like... <laughs> it's kind of like an apple for the teacher, you know? <laughs> A candy for the preacher. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, that's a first. I'm going to actually... Um, no, that truly is a first. This would help me to have it a little higher. Um, <clears throat> I didn't say a thing. I didn't say <laughs> yeah, great. Um, and I trust that everyone is well. Uh, it's good to see you again. And I appreciate even sharing those thoughts about what has been learned already from these lessons. And last night was a big picture. As I said, it was somewhat of a trailer of what we're going to look at uh, now in these next three sessions. And I want to get into it right away. So why don't we do that? I know we, 1045 is the next session. I'm not, I don't plan on preaching for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, So I guess we'll have a little gap uh, in between. So why don't you pray with me? Um, Lord, we are thankful for who you are, your goodness, grace, and mercy, and even as we consider some very lofty things um, from your word, uh, that you would help me to communicate them, that Christ would be glorified in it. We thank you for your mercy, which they are new every day. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Isaiah why the book of Isaiah, as we already considered, Isaiah gives us a very, very lofty view of God. And one thing that runs through Isaiah is God is holy, the Holy One of Israel. Uh, We use words even last night about the glory of God, and the glory of God meaning the sum of all of His perfections. And sometimes uh, that glory is manifested in a physical way. We, we see it manifested in a Shekinah glory. Uh, we see it manifested in his acts. Uh, God is displaying his glory in what he does. We see it in his creation. We look into the heavens and we see the glory of God. And then we see the glory of God in his attributes, um, all of his perfections. And when we think about the book of Isaiah, you get some very high views of God in this book. Now, when we think about why the book was written, though, we have to bring ourselves back down and ask, okay, why was the book itself written just in a basic sense? Uh, It was written to a captive people. The people of God, um, there is a focus in verses 1 to 39 on the Assyrians. It's the nations. God is saying to all the nations, I'm going to judge you because you have rejected me. And in one sense, the nations are even uh, going to be indicted because they should have been a servant as well. I, I told you last night that there were three servants, Jesus Christ, there's Cyrus, and there's Israel. But even the nations were to be a servant for God because God has created them to bring him glory, and the nations weren't doing that. So God is going to go through indictments against the nations, and then the great indictment is against the northern tribes of Israel. And what would God do? Through the Assyrians, God would take the northern tribe away into captivity. And so that is the focus on the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 39. And then in chapters 40. Um, in following, there is another focus that takes place that God is now going to indict um, Judah because there is a a large gap between uh, 722, the Assyrians take the northern tribes away, 586, then the Babylonians take the, the southern tribes away. And what makes that terribly bad is this. Judah had the opportunity to notice and to look at their northern brothers, and say, God is a holy God. Judah, or that is Israel, has violated God's holiness. Now God is punishing them. We should learn from this. All those many years they had to look, and they knew that their brothers had been taken away by the Assyrians, but yet they didn't learn. So instead of learning from them, eventually time goes on. They maintain their purity for a period of time, But eventually God says of Judah, I've had enough of you. 
you've committed covenant treachery, and then the Babylonians come and they take them away. And that's a very practical lesson. Why is that a practical lesson? Because they all saw God as a holy God. Um, Israel, that, when I say Israel, I'm speaking of the northern tribes. Uh, they are just despicable, and they violate God's covenant throughout. God sends the Assyrians, takes them away. You would think that there would be a lesson to learn. You would think that the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would realize, oh no, look what's happened. Let's maintain our holiness. Let's maintain our focus. Let's be the servant that our northern brothers weren't. But yet, they don't do that. And it's, um, when you think about parenting, there's so many things in the scripture and there are parallels to parenting. And that's why you see, obviously, God is a father, the Lord Jesus Christ, a son. He, he refers to us as children. He refers to us as sheep. And you can, at least for us, there are going to be occasions when you can think about one child has been punished for something or they've been chastised or, or they're on time out. And you would think everyone else in the family would learn the lesson. All the other kids would say, oh, no, uh, my older brother got in trouble. My younger brother got in trouble. My older sister, our younger sister get in trouble. I'll never do that. Has that ever happened in your parenting? No, of course not. Uh, the other kids sometimes follow suit. They think they can get away with it. They think, oh, the reason they got, they just got caught. I'm smarter than my brother or sister. I'm going to find a way to get, to get away with it. And it doesn't happen. You would think, wait a minute, you just saw what happened to your, your brother or sister. Why would you want to repeat that? And that's essentially what's happening here. The northern tribes, you were unfaithful God a, holy, a God of holiness, but he's also a God of great patience with you. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he said, it's enough. And the greatest Syrians come, and they take them away. But then God delivers them uh, by his great hand, and the Syrians decline, and the Babylonians are being raised up. And as the Babylonians are being raised up, Judah is not learning their lesson and then there's a pronouncement that's being made, and Jeremiah tells us about this. The Babylonians are coming. We see in the book of Lamentations, he's lamenting because he realized what is going to happen to his people, but yet they won't listen. They're stubborn. And especially in the preaching of Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah says to these false prophets, you're proclaiming peace, peace, but there is no peace. And why did they persecute Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah was speaking the truth. He was telling them, Judah, won't you listen? Won't you listen? Won't you learn from my northern brothers? But they had false teachers in their midst, and these false teachers were telling them everything is going to be okay. And of course it wasn't. And they get taken away. So in chapters 1 to 39, we can call it a big picture is a breach of covenant. There's been a breach of covenant with the nations. They're not serving God. And there's been a breach of covenant with the northern tribes. They are not serving God. But then beautifully in chapters really 40 through 66, we see God's response. God's response and restoration. And God is saying, I'm going to make all things right. Even though your southern brothers are going to be taken away to Babylon, I'm going to bring them back again. They don't deserve it, but I will return them. And we're going to notice um, how God shows his compassion towards Judah, who is undeserving, even as we consider some other texts. But let me just give you, let me whet your appetite a bit. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and what does it communicate there? So now, <clears throat> what is interesting, just briefly look at chapter 39. And there's a transition that takes place here because what is happening in Isaiah 37 to 39, this transition begins. Hezekiah is king. The Assyrians now are threatening Judah. And the Assyrians, in one sense, they become greedy. We've taken away the northern tribes. Now they have their eyes on the southern tribes. And the Assyrians are making their way into Judah. They have actually come into Judah. 
and they've destroyed some of the Judean cities, and they've made their way all the way to Jerusalem. And what does God do? God intervenes and says, no, not yet. Not you. The Assyrians will not overthrow um, Judah because God has a divine plan. He is still being gracious with his people. And this is what we see happening in chapters 37 to 39. God fights for the people of God. Uh, you may be familiar with the story. What happens is the Assyrians are coming. Shennacherib, the great leader of the Assyrians, makes this pronouncement. And he essentially writes a letter to Hezekiah. And the letter is essentially saying, there's no way that you can stand up against me. Ask all the nations of, of the world, at least at that time. None of them have stood against the great Assyrians, which was true. Uh, I've also wiped out all of these other cities of Judah, which was true. You should just surrender. And what happens, Hezekiah takes the letter. Um, he goes to the temple of God. He prays. He, he calls for Isaiah. And Isaiah gives him a word from God, which is essentially saying, no, God will fight for you. Then what happens, um, the Assyrians are in their encampment. God sends one angel, one angel. And the one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. Just one. Then what happens? Shanaka realizes, oh my, uh, these words are true. He goes back to his own land. And by God's very word, he says that I'm gonna, you're going to be taken back by your nostrils, if you will. And that was a pronouncement that says you're going to go back in disgrace. And you're going to die by the sword. And God's word comes true because Shennacherib, in a great irony really, Shennacherib goes to his own temple. And what happens in his own temple? Two of his sons come in and they kill him by the sword. And so it phases out. The Assyrians are now phasing out because God, as we even considered last night, God is a sovereign God. He, he raises up nations and he brings nations down. He raises up kings and he uses them and he brings them down. And then in chapter 39, you see here, now the time of um, the Babylonians are going to begin because um, you said the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for he'd heard that he had been sick and he had recovered because in chapter 38, God says of Hezekiah, um, Put your house in order. You're about to die. And what does Hezekiah do? He goes before the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. And the Lord says, I have see, I've heard your prayers and I've seen your tears. He adds 15 years to his life. So the word spread that Hezekiah, who had fought off the Assyrians, and it really wasn't Hezekiah who fought them off. It was Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Remember that language, the Lord of hosts who fought them off. And now the Babylonians hear about it, so they send a letter saying, it's great, we're glad that you're better. And Hezekiah in his foolishness, what does he do? He brings them in and he shows them all of his treasures. Um, and then God speaks a word to him, why have, essentially, why have you done this? Um, and he makes a pronouncement that these Babylonians are going to take away your kingdom. And then Hezekiah, in an odd statement, says, well, this is good. At least it won't happen in my lifetime. Those are some strange, that's a strange statement in one sense. And you see statements like that throughout Scripture where God makes a pronouncement that others are going to be doomed, and you hear supposedly a man of God or king say, okay, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. But this is what happens. So now, in chapter 40, in chapter 40, what happens here? God speaks, he says, comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God is saying now this time of the Babylonians is entering and he says to Jerusalem, comfort them. Now, what we need to understand is Hezekiah uh, when the people of God would be delivered, um, I'm sorry, Isaiah, when the people of God would be delivered, he is not alive. So he speaks prophetically. He's saying that there is going to come a point in time where God is going to deliver you. 
because there is literally a 150-year gap uh, between the people of God and him making this pronouncement and then the people of God being delivered. And that troubles some people. Um, some scholars say, well, um, that's why we have to have a second Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah actually wasn't written by Isaiah because how could Isaiah know when they were going to deliver, be delivered? How could Isaiah know that there was a Cyrus? Cyrus is not even born at this point in time. The Persian people aren't really a great people at this point in time. How could he make such a pronouncement? Does anyone have an answer for that? How, how can Isaiah do that? Because he is what? A prophet of God, is he not? <laughs> Does God not know the future? Do we all agree with that? Does God know the future? So it's really pretty simple. It really is. But if you don't accept uh, divine intervention, if you don't accept that God is absolute, if you don't accept the miraculous, then it is a stumbling block for you. You have to look for another way to explain it. But for us, we don't. We trust God's word. And so he's saying here, God is going to comfort his people. This is the sort of God that he is. And despite the fact that they didn't learn their lesson. And he is essentially saying here in that, in that opening two verses that, yes, it's all over. You paid a sufficient price. I'm going to bring you back again. And so that gives you somewhat of the backdrop of the book itself and what is happening and God is going to then, throughout this book, say, I'm going to deliver my people. And not only that, I'm going to send this great servant who is going to make all things right. And not only that, that I'm going to make all things right, even in all of the heavens and all of the earth. That's why all things will become new. So our first, let's go back to our first consideration and how we need to stand in awe of God. Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6. Let's consider that. Isaiah 6, turn there, that we must stand in awe of God. And as we do this, we're going to focus um, on God's holiness, God's holiness. And we'll spend more time uh, in this section because we have to develop this. Now, you said, well, there are nine points and we only have um, this session and two more. Uh, how are you going to get through them? I will, trust me. Uh, and you pray for me as well as we work our way through. But we have to spend a bit more time here in this opening thought that we should stand in awe. The first thought, stand in awe of a holy Savior. Stand in awe of a holy Savior. And I read it again. They're having a blast over there. I love it. Uh, and it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out when, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. And he, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Send me. Holy, holy, holy. And what is interesting about this language, let's just begin in one sense looking at verse 3. Holy, holy, holy. You've sung this song, I'm sure, before. Uh, you have read this verse, I'm sure, before. You've heard messages un undoubtedly before about the holiness of God. But this is something we can never hear too much of. That God is great and awesome and he is a God of absolute holiness. 
And what is interesting about the language that is written in such a way um, that it says, and they kept on saying, they kept on crying, holy, holy, holy. It's not as if they made one pronouncement, holy, holy, holy. It is their life. It is their purpose. They are created that they would constantly cry out that God is holy. Even this very moment um, in eternity, in God's heaven, they are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what's interesting about this language in an ancient culture, this is not unusual that someone uh, would be recognized for them being superior, at least in the minds of their subjects, being superior. And in Egypt, the high priests, when they were addressing the enthroned Pharaoh, they proclaimed, pure, pure is the king of the south and of the north. And think about that. So they see Pharaoh as a god and they cry out, pure, pure is he. And why was it only pure, pure? Because even in the Hebrew language, there is a sense in which you have a a superlative. So you make the statement twice. Um, And there are some examples of this. Um, in, I think it's in Genesis. Yes, it is in Genesis. It's just a, an example where they would cry out twice to emphasize something. And this emphasis is saying, pay attention to it. Uh, these priests of the Pharaoh thought, well, let's make sure that the people understand that the Pharaoh is pure. So we say pure, pure is he of the north and of the south. When we think about God's holiness, It's what I said before. It's God's absolute uniqueness. It's his separation. God is a God of holiness, and he is opposed to sin. And because he is opposed to sin, he must, in fact, punish it. He must punish it. But here, when it says that he is holy, 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 it is what is called a super superlative, created even for this purpose. So yes, it was examples of a superlative repeating something twice, but now we have a super superlative. This is unique to God, that he is holy, holy, holy. He is thrice holy, if you will. Well, some will say, well, um, of course he's thrice holy because the Trinity Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's really what's being communicated here. He is not saying the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Spirit is holy, so we have to say it three times. No, uh, what is being communicated here and also in the book of Revelation and Revelation 4, which we'll pay attention to in a bit, is simply saying uh, this is beyond us to grasp. In the Hebrew language, there are times when we would use this superlative to say gold, gold. And at times that word is communicated that way. But now when it comes to God, it's beyond that. He's distinct and unique. God is a God of absolute holiness, so we have to repeat it three times, not to try to identify the Trinity, but it's looking at God and his completeness and saying he is a unique God that is distinct and separated from all else. Now, this word holy, kadash, is the word. Um, We first find it, if you go back with me, in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And notice what it says here in verse, chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. So we see this covenant treachery um, pronounced even here early in the book of of Isaiah. And why? Notice the language that's used of the people. They're called a sinful nation. They're weighed down with iniquity. They're the offspring of evildoers. But this has been passed on to you from your fathers and from your mothers. They had rejected God, and so you reject God as well. But we also see this idea of God's holiness if you look in chapter 5. In chapter 5. Chapter 5. Verse 16, and here it says, but Yahweh of hosts will be exalted in judgment 
and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Now notice, it's, this is in the context of what we said last night about these woes. And notice these woes. Verse 8, woe to those who add house to house. Notice verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. Verse 18, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. Then verse 20, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. They substitute light for darkness and darkness for light. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine. So (laughs) the woes come as a result of what? Verse 8, they add house to house. They're building their own personal kingdom. They're like a miniature Neb- they're like a miniature Nebuchadnezzar. Look at my great kingdom which my hands have made. Look at all of my glory. And this is a practical consideration for us because God is indicting Israel and saying, what you're doing, you're adding house to house. It's career to career. It's promotion to promotion. It's the things of the world on top of the things of the world. And what can happen in society, society can dupe us into believing that if we simply have these things and we are successful in life. And I think all of us know that that is emphatically untrue. But Israel didn't see it that way. And then in verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink. What a lifestyle that is. So they wake up early to intoxicate themselves, to be caught up in the things of the world. And then notice in verse 18, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if if with cart ropes. And what is it saying here? That you're finding ways to sin. You're discovering different ways to sin, but yet judgment is going to come upon you. In a classic verse in 520, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So question today, what do we see in society? What do we see in society? A society that reverses what is right. A society that says this choice is actually a righteous choice. You you denouncing it based on biblical scriptures is actually an unrighteous choice. So we, the people of God, becomes the haters and those that are living in iniquity becomes they become the righteous. Things are absolutely reversed today. Um, this is not a political statement. I don't, you know, politics is a strange thing, isn't it? Um, and I remember some years ago, I, in my former church, I made a statement that indicted uh, who would be president for two terms some years ago. And... Um, People said, well, you made a political statement. I said, no, I didn't. That was a moral statement. It was a moral statement based on what the person believes. It, w- it was a moral statement because he's an advocate of so many things that oppose God's word. And i would never forget it. Even in the middle of that message, I had one person who was actually, he had been a deacon in the church. He wasn't when I was there, had been, was a deacon in the church. He, he got up and walked out, and I never saw him again. I thought, oh my, boy, I have my work ahead of me in this church. <laughs> but others saw, you're right, what you're saying wasn't political. It had nothing to do with parties. It had to do with uh, moral decisions and moral consequences. And I say that to set up this point. There is a, a, a governor's race that's taking place in Georgia, and I followed it somewhat um, because the woman that's running again, she was defeated last year, and well, not last year, but last term, and she thought that it was rigged. And it's so interesting to me how sometimes people, she was one person when others were claiming their election was rigged. Oh, no, we must accept the results of the election. Then when she lost, all of a sudden everything is rigged. Um, but the problem with her, she is a heinous person. She really is. She, she's really horrible. Um, and the reason being, her position on abortion is just extreme. Extreme. Even to the point, I, I saw her at a forum and she's saying, well, don't be duped by this, this heartbeat 
um, proposal, it, which is simply saying some states have determined that, well, if we can hear heartbeat, then you can no longer have a, an abortion. And her position, no, we're being duped. And she made it a political um, statement. It's that party that's saying those sort of things. They want to take away your rights. And then this wicked and worthless woman also said this, that even when it comes to abortion, she took, takes a position it should be a woman's prerogative at any time. And the question was asked, what about even uh, literally at, at birth? Yes, even at birth. It is, and in her words, it's the righteous thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And we use the word right, we're simply saying it's a righteous thing. See, that is light, <coughs> that is substituting darkness for light. That is substituting uh, what is wicked for what is good. These things are never, when someone makes statements like that, it's never divorced um, from moral consequences and violating the principles and commands of a holy God. Never. What was happening in Israel? Similar things. You're saying something that's good is actually bad. And what is bad is actually good. So they say to us, you're actually bad because you talk about an exclusive savior. I, I even have a recording, and who knows, it may be a day. We have a recording. You had this guy Hargrove come to you at Mount Hermon um, Christian Center, and one of his points was that we should stand in awe of an exclusive Savior. That's intolerance. That's unloving. That's bad. You can't say that. We should all coexist. No. Is that day coming? Surely it is. Will I see it? I don't know. You know, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I may speak about the prophets and what the prophets say, but I don't know when that day is coming, but it is, it's there. He says to Israel, woe. Notice verse 21, woe because of your pride. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. But in the midst of it, notice something. In the midst of the woe, notice verse 19. He says, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Now what is interesting about this statement, this is abject arrogance here. How so? Because essentially what they're saying is, God, prove it to us. We're going to live our life. We're going to build our houses. We're going to rise early and we're going to drink. Uh, we're going to create ways to sin. Um, <clears throat> if God really is God, if Yahweh is really Yahweh, why doesn't he prove it to us? And that's the statement you see in verse 19. Let him make speed. Let him come and show himself. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Doesn't it sound similar? Um, Jesus Christ. And how was he hackled even on the cross? On the cross, there was a sense in which they're saying to Jesus Christ on the cross, well, uh, why don't you come down? Why don't you perform a miracle? Even the thief that was next to him, or the criminal, don't know if it's necessarily a thief, the criminal next to him. I mean, if you're a son of God, why don't you save yourself and us? And those that are looking at him, they're saying, if he comes down from the cross, then we will believe. Prove it to us. And this is the same spirit that we see here. And then notice verse 24. And it says, therefore, a tongue of fire consumes stubble. It says, and dry um, grass collapses into the flame. So their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. They rejected God and the result is God is going to reject them and is going to take them away into exile. God is a holy God. So holy one of Israel. I mean that's our, the big picture for you know this weekend. You know let me give you some interesting um, how Isaiah lays out the holy one of Israel. In verses, I keep saying verses, chapters 1 to 39, 
we see Holy One of Israel 12 times. And then in chapters 40 to 66, we see it like 15 times or 14, 15 times. Let's just walk through them. I just want you to see them, how it's laid out. So it's really, really important for Isaiah that this theme of God's holiness um, is seen throughout um, the book of Isaiah. We already saw it in 1-4. We already noted it in chapter 5 where it comes up there in verse 19 and verse 24. Look at chapter 10. It comes up in chapter 10. So we saw it in 1-4. We saw it in 5-19. We saw it in 5, what is it, 24, I believe. Yes, we see it in chapter 10, verse 20. It says, now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will rely on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. So we see now the sense of God's holiness is connected to reliance or trust. And look at chapter 12, verse 6. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O mountain of Zion, for great in the midst is the Holy One of Israel. There should be thanksgiving because the Holy One of Israel in your midst, and the implication of that, if he is in your midst, either he can be there for judgment or he can be there for support. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, then in verse 7. In that in that day, man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. So uh, there is going to be a point where God will show graciousness and the eyes of people will see God for who he is. Look at chapter 29. Chapter 29, we see again this Holy One of Israel. Chapter 29 in verse 19. It says, the afflicted will also increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So despite the fact that men are sinful, God will be gracious. Again, how do we know that men are sinful? Here's woe again. Look at chapter 29, verse 1. It says, woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. And add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. What he's doing here, he's indicting them. He says, yes, you go through um, your religious scheduling, but you have no heart for God. You bring that in today's culture. It's essentially, it says, yes, you perform religious duties in the church. You may be involved in the church, but yet you have no true heart for God. Verse 15, woe to those who <clears throat> deeply hide their plans from the Lord in whose deeds are done in dark places. And they say, who sees us or who knows it? Woe to you because you think that somehow you can hide your sin from the Lord. We bring that into today's culture and a practical application for us. We should never think that we can hide from the Lord. Uh, why is that? It's, it's foolish to think that. God knows the heart and he knows the mind and he knows every action. That's why I always tell people recently, I spoke, um, it was a men's meeting last weekend. And um, one thing that I, I gave them these 12 considerations that men should think about. And one was, which would be true for anyone, not just men. How do you deal with temptation? And for each question I had, I gave them one word that sort of in one sense captured the thought. And we came to, how do you deal with temptation? And my one word was this, satisfaction. Satisfaction. And why did I say that? Because um, you can, because some may think, well, surely the word has to be accountability. If you want to deal with temptation properly, you have to have accountability. And if you have accountability, then that's going to help you grow in a given area. Um, there is a, that person can ask you the tough questions, and you can engage, and they can stimulate you and admonish you and maybe even rebuke you or encourage you. But here's the thing. Um, accountability is only as effective as you're willing to be honest. 
Because if you're not honest, you can have an accountability group all you want. But if you're not honest with people, it is of no good. You can be dishonest with those around you, but never can you escape the omnipresent eye of God. And this is what's happening here. God is saying, why do you pretend that you can hide in the darkness from your sin? I see it all. But what's beautiful about it, God is saying there still will be a time I'm going to show graciousness towards you and there will be restoration. Look at chapter 30. Chapter 30. Verse 11, it's here three times. Verse 11, he says, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore says the Holy One of Israel, since you rejected this word and you have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity, <clears throat> therefore this iniquity will be to you. And notice the arrogance here again. We don't want to hear from the Lord. And God says, okay, you've made your decision. Now you're going to feel the full consequences of your actions. So we see it in verse 11, in verse 12, verse 15. Notice it comes up again, the Holy One of Israel. He says, thus says the, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. Let's pause here for a moment. Notice this offer that God has. These words are tender words. Notice what he says. They have made a statement earlier. They don't want to hear from the Holy One of Israel. He says, okay, you don't want to hear from me. You will face the consequences of your choice. And then he says in verse 15, repentance and rest. Quietness and trust. If you would just repent and rest in me, you can be saved. Uh, quietness. Why quietness and trust? Forget your ceremonies. Um, forget your religious exercises. There should be a quietness of heart and repentance. And if you have that, then that will be your strength in life. But he says, but you are unwilling. That's a, a hard statement to consider. God is in one sense putting out his hand of grace to the people of God, but yet they're unwilling to hear it. And God says, okay, here is my hand of grace, but yet you reject it. As we can use the idea, you know, don't slap the hand that feeds you. And God is saying, I, I'm willing to be gracious to you, although you have rejected me, but I still extend my hand to you. Okay, you don't want it? I still extend my hand to you, but now it's no longer a hand of salvation or tenderness and care. It's going to be a, a hand of wrath. A hand of wrath is going to come. It's your choice to make. And then, look with me. Let's, um, we also see it in chapter 31, um, verse 1. Notice what it says here. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and Trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Remember earlier we said, well, how can you be saved? Well, you'll be saved as you repent and you rest. How can you be saved? In quietness of spirit and trust. But yet you've decided something that's really just the opposite. You're going to trust in Egypt for help. No, Egypt is not reliable. Now, why is that important? This idea of relying on Egypt, because it comes up somewhere else. Turn with me, if you will. Um, if we consider again in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 36, Isaiah 36. Remember, I said there's this transition that's happening. Uh, God is going to send the Assyrians on them, uh, they are going to be rejected um, by the Lord because Hezekiah trusts in the Lord. Notice what he says. Then, verse 4, Isaiah 36, then Rabshakeh said to him, and Rabshakeh is the representative for the king of Assyria in this particular battle. And it says, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? 
I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Because Hezekiah decides, I'm going to rebel against paying this tribute to the king of Assyria. And now the king of, of Assyria is sending his troops into Judah, and they're coming to Jerusalem. So Hezekiah is showing trust here, like his father David. And notice the language that's so important. And notice the words confidence, rely, 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 trust, rely throughout this passage. And I want you to see the words in verse 6. Notice verse 6. Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. And we see earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah is indicting the people of God. Well, God himself is indicting them by saying, why would you rely on Egypt? You, you rely on Egypt because you say, look at their horses, look at their chariots, they're many. That's what we need. We need an abundance of strength. And God says, no, you need only me. You need only rest in me. You remember the story of Gideon? And how did the story of Gideon end? Who remembers that story? Gideon, the Lord, they're going to fight against the enemies of God. And Gideon initially has thousands of men that are going to fight with him. And God gives instruction. He says, well, no, take these men away. Take these men away. And eventually, um, he says, well, let's go to the river and you drink. And those that would drink like a dog, if you will, those are the ones that are worthy of fighting. Because they're ready with their hand at their sword, if you will. And it ended up being, what, 300 men. And that was a statement essentially to say that it doesn't take many, it doesn't take the mighty if you have the Lord. You say, wait a minute, we understand that. That's such a simple principle, perhaps. But here's the problem. It's often with these simple foundational principles where we go astray. Because you might say that for Israel. They had hundreds and hundreds of years of hearing these things. Prophets had spoken. The judges had spoken. They'd heard this time and time again. And they find themselves in a position, why don't they just trust the basics? If God is for you, who can be against you? Why don't they just trust the basics? He is the one who's fighting for you. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's unique and distinct and separated, all-powerful. Why would you not trust him? The same thing is true for our lives today. Why would we not trust him? And at times we want to be like the nations or like Israel, and we're looking for horses and chariots. And God is saying, no, it's not horses and chariots you trust in me. So this theme of the Holy One of Israel goes throughout the book itself. Look with me at chapter 37. Chapter 37. And we just referenced this episode before, but look at chapter 37, 23. And it's better to start at verse 21, really. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Shennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken against him. He has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem, or of Zion. She has shaken her head against you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached in blaspheme? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? And now, essentially, Shennacherib is in trouble because Hezekiah sent word through Isaiah and God himself is saying, here are the words of encouragement that I give you. I recognize what Shennacherib has done. He has not blasphemed you he has ultimately blasphemed me. And that is our connection to the living God. When people blaspheme the church, 
when they blaspheme our work, when they criticize us, they are ultimately criticizing God. And God will fight his battles. Now, there, I think some of you may um, perhaps think, okay, Lord, when are you going to fight this battle? Why don't you wipe out the enemies right now? I, that, the woman that I'm speaking about um, that is running for, um, for governor, the fact that she has the breath to even speak those things is a gracious act of God. It really is. The fact that he gives her life is God's graciousness and kindness and patience. And I think all of us need to appreciate that. All of us lived some life before we came to the Lord. Now some of you, if you came to the Lord early in life, there wasn't enough time for you to, to deviate as far as one can deviate. But some of you, that may not be true. You, you deviated quite well. You rejected truth quite well. And even in those moments, God continued to give you life. Because he knew at one point in time, he would be gracious towards you. And he would bring you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so even as I think about this woman, and I, and I also pray for her. Because I think, what a frightening position to be in. Because for her, if somehow, I, I'm praying that she loses, absolutely loses. It's not my state, but I just care about truth. I pray that she loses. But I pray that she gains her soul. Because the scripture is clear. What is it? What if she does win? And what if now she's governor there? And I know her, I'm surely her aspirations are for something even bigger and better, if you will. Then she's a senator, and perhaps maybe her aspirations are the White House. What if she gains all of that and she loses her soul? And there are people around us. What if they gain the whole world and they lose their soul? I could say the same thing about um, the governor of this state. Another wicked man. You say... Um, we didn't come here to hear you talk about wicked politicians. <laughs> well, they just happen to be the most pronounced and wicked people today. <laughs> That's just the way it is. How do I know he's wicked? Well, just by his own words. Just by, I was two weeks ago in Mississippi, I was in Jackson, Mississippi, and someone said, oh, your, your governor's signs are here too. Oh, that's right, he's posted them all around the country. And you may have heard about it where uh, the governor's office has, because of the ruling with Roe versus Wade and states reversing their policies um, or changing policies on abortion, so now um, California is a haven for women that cannot get abortions at a certain term and they can come to California uh, to have an abortion. So what the governor has done, Governor Newsom, a wicked governor has done, he has posted billboards around the country in different places. And I have a picture of it here. And I took it. We were going down. The, it was the, thing, yes, the 55. And they said, there's a sign. Billboard. A, a young lady that looks troubled. And she, she sort of stares off, if you will. And, and there's a statement. Let me, let me make sure I get it right. Because I want you, the wording correct on this. Um, as I pass by. Yes, here it is. Um, and he says... Here's this woman, and you can imagine a younger girl. She, she has her, her hand here, and she looks troubled, and she's sort of looking off, if you will. And it says, need an abortion? California is ready to help. Learn more at abortionca.gov. But what really makes it wicked is this. Underneath that, underneath that, he says, well, it's printed. He didn't say. What's troubling is that he didn't say it. The Lord Jesus Christ said it. And it says this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than this. Quoting from Mark chapter 12. 
Right there, I saw it with my own eyes. And as I was in Jackson over that weekend preaching and meeting with leaders, I saw it several times. And every time I saw it, I said to myself, what a wicked and worthless man. In all of his administration. But then I also thought, God is so patient. This is an amazing thing. Uh, This is long-suffering. That essentially what you're saying is that come to our state, we will help you. And then I got into a discussion, at least in some areas, well, certain um, insurance companies have decided, yeah, it's it's, we'll pay for her to go as well because if she has it, costs involved with that, complications perhaps. Um, the gov- our govern- government is saying we'll help supplement some of this as well. That's wicked. And so I would say that God is also saying woe to you. Woe to you, Gavin Newsom. To use my word. To say that this is love. Woe to you California legislation. That you would have young ladies come to your state to abort their children. Woe to you voters. Who would turn the other way and say. "Um, Yes but fiscally uh, things may be better with him. Which is not the truth. That's why so many people are leaving the state. But I'm glad you're here because you can remain as lights. Amen. You need, you need lights in darkness, do you not? Whoa. I am the Holy One of Israel. This is wickedness. It's wickedness. And really what makes it wicked, and I, I'm, it just makes me boil even looking at this sign. To quote the word of God. The fact that Gavin Newsom this very moment has life in his body is an act of God's grace. Do you agree with me? It's an act of his grace. Um, God is a holy God and he won't tolerate these sorts of things. With Israel, he called out and he called out and he called out, but they didn't hear. And after a while he says, that's enough. I'm going to send you away. Then Judah saw it. And he called out. And he called out. And he called out. And he said that's enough. I'm going to send you away. But the great thing about it. Is all those words that I read from chapter 40. Comfort. Oh comfort my people. And it says. Speak kindly to the heart. Of Jerusalem. Kindly to the heart of Jerusalem. (laughs) <laughs> the ones who rejected you, the ones who said, prove yourself, Yahweh. Yeah, speak kindly to him. And, and literally the word in, in the language is, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. You, you should stand in awe of that. That when people can be so very wicked, but yet God be so very patient with them. And it's true for our own lives. Even once we've come to the Lord. And now we have a knowledge of Christ and who Christ is. And and you can have the joy of salvation. But still dabble in the things of the world. That's God's graciousness towards you. But don't go too far. Because at some point in time, God may say, I've had enough. After chasing you. The beautiful thing about a believer Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. Nothing can separate us from that. But as a good heavenly father, he will chasten you. As a friend that even someone I know that has made some poor, poor choices recently. And something tragic happened to them. And I'm glad that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And one of my interns had already counseled with this person. And when he sent me the news of it, we both thought, I hope he listens. 
I hope he listens. Now, do I know that in fact, God used that specific event to stir up his life? I can't say emphatically, but everything is pointing towards it. To say, friend, wake up. God is holy. You cannot treat him as unholy. Stand in awe of that. Father, we thank you for these words you give us. And we would pray that you use them for the glory of your name. Amen.